0: Hey everyone, welcome to season two of the Legends of Retail podcast, brought to you by Convictional. We talk to leaders in retail and e-commerce so you can learn from them about retail strategy, leadership, team management, and take their insights back to your company. I'm your host, Chris Grushy, co-founder and president of Convictional. What's Convictional? In short, retailers use Convictional to connect to vendors for Dropship and Curated Marketplace. We're kicking off Season 2 with a very special guest. Over his 30 years as an executive in the technology sector, Matt Hewlett has become the go-to company fixer. From Real Networks, to Rosetta Stone, to Expedia, Matt has steered startups and large companies into renewed areas for growth and has driven more than $2 billion in value creation. He's in the midst of his latest venture as the CEO of PetMeds. On today's pod, I asked Matt about his new book, Unlock, Five Questions to Unleash Your Company's Hidden Power. In the book, Matt shares his framework he calls T3PM, Trends, Timing, Track Record, Planning, and Momentum. It's a framework that I think every entrepreneur and business leader should understand when they're considering starting a business or joining a team at an established company. We dive into each of the elements of T3PM framework and tie them to practical lessons from companies like Expedia, Rovio, Concur, and yes, even Convictional. Matt's learned from some famed entrepreneurs and investors, including Rich Barton of Zillow, Mike Moritz of Sequoia Capital, and Mike Hilton of Concur. Here's my conversation with Matt Hewlett, CEO of PetMeds. Matt, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to meet you in person. Yes, absolutely. I guess kind of in person.
0: Well, we could see each other, which is great. And uh, next time you're in Toronto or I'm in Seattle, I think that's home base for you. Is that right? That's right. Cool. Well, we'll do this face-to-face, but I want to begin our conversation by asking about a moment in time very early on in your career of how you got hired at this company nobody's ever heard of progressive networks
1: yeah and it's open up your history books at one point in time it was the only application where you could really experience live audio and live video so streaming audio and video on the internet and uh just to put it to contextualize kind of how early it was NCSA Mosaic, which was the first web browser that came out of Champaign, Illinois, created by this guy named Mark Andreessen, who everyone knows now as part of Andreessen Horowitz, created the first graphical way to experience the internet. It was a free application. Later, he started a company called Netscape, became one of the hottest internet IPOs of all time. Anyways, I was at this other company. I downloaded, I think it was like a Solaris box. So it was a Sun OS kind of system. I downloaded NCSA Mosaic, and for the first time, and I was relatively geeky into the internet, like pinging things, telnetting into things. It was the first time I graphically saw the internet, and I quickly wanted to get involved in that. Somewhere in Seattle, I literally wrote a letter to a company called Progressive Networks that had just started out streaming. I think they had kind of a, an early version of what was called The Real Player, and wrote the CEO a letter, and he called me, and I think it was like on a Friday. Interviewed on a Saturday, and I quit. And two weeks later, I was working there.
0: The so I will admit I heard the story, and the reason I wanted to start with it is because this like audacity of writing a a written letter. Right today we would just use email or something. Didn't have any business writing. I believe it was Rob Glazer. Yep, the letter and saying, Hey, I want to work for you. Right? Yeah. That was actually how I got my first job out of college at Shopify. You know, obviously massive Canadian success story being Canadian based. It was like, I e-commerce is the thing. I want to go see what this company is all about and work for a winning company and learn how to do that. And so cold emailed a few folks over there. And sure enough, you know, three weeks later, had an offer in hand, signed it. And then, you know, that was it. So the idea of you being able to reach out to anybody regardless of where you are in life, it's so profound.
1: Yeah. I, you know, we probably don't have time to, to cut into this, but there's lots of signals for what makes a great hire at the right time. But just kind of the grit and determination is a is a big part of it. And I'm always surprised at the folks that I talk to that will give up after one or two inbounds trying to get to me. Because everyone says you have 15 minutes. None of us have 15 minutes. But the most persistent people who can craft a message and
0: shape it to something that's actionable, end up getting hired. It's a superpower. If you can master the art and science of mm-hmm. a cold email or a written letter, you can literally add zeros to your net worth. I believe that to be true. Absolutely. So further on in your career, you started getting a lot of responsibility in various roles. And you know, at one point, speaking on stage to a group of developers and you're you know, very early on, Was there some imposter syndrome that came with that responsibility early on in your career? What was your relationship with imposter syndrome?
1: Well, everyone has it. Actually, this is the only podcast I've ever written notes for because you did such a good job of asking wonderful questions. And I thought I should reciprocate by nailing the answers. And I guess I would say that everyone experiences it. It's now acceptable to tell individuals and empathize with individuals that you have it as well which is good. We have major sports stars that are talk about their mental health and mental diversity. I guess I would say is everyone has it. It's really a reflection of your own ego. It's your, your own inside thoughts. And I have a ways in which I can break that down. But I always like to, and maybe it, my wife says it's somewhat sociopathic, but I've always imagined these boxes in my head. When something's really, really hard, I always assume like the situation I'm in is like a sitcom. And I'm floating outside of that situation and watching it so I can kind of parse the fear and the perceived danger to actually intellectual splicing of the puzzle. And so that has always helped me kind of reflect on, on whether there's a real issue. For example, imposter syndrome is basically the fear that someone's going to find out that you're not worthy of that skill or task or job. And so I always kind of parse the, that feeling into a box and then evaluate it like, A, is this true? Well, no, I've done X, Y, and Z for a number of years. And then B, if it is true, then really my job is to uncover how to solve the puzzle. It's not, no reflection on myself. So I try to kind of unpack that syndrome, per se, by compartmentalization and also kind of playing a kind of a sizzle reel of what I'm really capable of. And that kind of disassociates the problem of imposter syndrome. I don't know if that answers your question.
0: Absolutely, it does. Everyone experiences it, particularly people who maybe have a degree of success early on in their career, and they need to somehow contend with this because it can be crippling. I think the idea or the tactic you're recommending of compartmentalization, or rather, being able to separate yourself from the imposter syndrome is quite powerful. And so I love that idea and the metacognition that goes into it. I you know, I grew up in a single parent household. I'm sure that has something to do with that our upbringings have screwed us up in one way or another. And it's up to the adult version of us to go back and look at how that impacts us now. Oh boy, are we going to
1: get along? There's a lot of similarities here
0: between you and I. All right. Well, let's talk about the book, Unlock. Congratulations. It's an incredible read. And also congratulations on the recent audio version. I've been crushing it. In the very beginning of the book, you liken yourself to Liam Neeson's character in the movie Taken. For folks who have seen that movie, they could probably almost hear Liam Neeson's character in their ears right now, which is you know a man with a very particular set of skills. I'm curious, Matt, what are those skills that you're referring to? And did you intentionally decide to learn them? And maybe we'll start there.
1: Yeah, you brought up Environment versus genetics. You were kind of, that was a gateway drug kind of point that you made earlier about a single family home. I too lived in a single family home, primarily raised by my mom. My parents divorced when I was younger. And it thrust me in a situation where I was the head of the household in many situations, far younger than most would be at that age group. And so, maturity wise, I accelerated massively in terms of the maturity scale, in terms of at least what I perceived maturity was. And it gave me kind of a triage mindset because there was always a lot of stress coming at me. And so I felt like I was always wired at taking on lots of stressful situations very quickly and parsing the importance of it. Like some people talk about prioritization frameworks like the Eisenhower matrix. And I felt like I was really good at a young age of figuring out, okay, what are the most important things to do and address in stack rank order, which may be a great product manager when I go older. But I felt like I was very good at kind of Taking really stressful situations. And I think I became over time addicted to the dopamine of that. So the environment created it. I did have some genetic pieces around, I'm dyslexic. And then by nature, you know, I'm relatively good at creativity and management, not particularly great at reading quickly. And I think the combination of environment and genetics kind of made me wired to be this kind of person. And over time, as things tend to do, you get typecast at that. And so whether you decide to be good at it or not, you become known for that. And those are the types of roles and functions that come
0: to me. And I think a lot of people who are looking at the skill set that you just described would say, oh, I'm just going to go and get an MBA because that's the shortcut. you know, I'll pay hundreds of thousands of dollars, get the piece of paper, and now I've got skills. Let's like debunk that myth. Do you need an MBA to acquire those skills? You don't.
1: And, you know, tactically, if you're stepping back from your career and you're architecting or as uh, anyone 20 or 30 years younger than myself says manifesting. So if you're trying to manifest some kind of outcome, I would say, you know, just if you're looking at a baseball card of the manifestation, statistically, if you go to an Ivy League school, that is a strong signal that you have grit, and you have some level of superior IQ. doesn't mean that a level of IQ helps you later in your career, but it's some signal that as an employer, it's a vetted candidate. So you have kind of less risk to hire that person than someone off the street that was self-learned. So that's helpful in many verticals, like you see that in finance for in particular or doctorate programs. That does help you. However, for the vast majority of people, especially today with the access to the aptitude, the specific, Kind of micro classifications you can get online. You don't need that. It just, I would say, helps you get early signal to move in some of these more Ivy League oriented professions in like investment banking. I would say for the vast majority of people, you don't need an MBA. I don't have an MBA. I got my career very quickly in the software industry as a product manager in a company that was growing very quickly, hundred revenue from kind of. 20 million when I started and I thought that was normal and so my MBA was on the job. So the signal that I acquired very quickly was real world experience and good progression in my craft. And so you don't need it. You need it less so. And over time, you know, the the state and the economics of higher education are changing such that you're going to have a lot of colleges that are going to be bankrupt. The Ivy League will be the Ivy League because they control the supply of entrance and then you're going to have a lot of people who have to make the decision well, do I get kind of a, a mediocre MBA or just do I do this on my own and get real world job experience? And so economically, I would say you're going to see a lot less MBAs over time with the same number of Harvards and Yales out there because that's kind of an elite brand that, that will always be controlled with a high price point and a high filter. So you don't need an MBA to be successful in business. And I find that I can't even discern four to five years out. MBA versus real-world experience, any kind of aptitude that's missing if you don't have an MBA,
0: to be honest. It makes sense. And you make this point in, I believe, the timing section, which we'll get to in the book, around how it's never been easier to start a company. And so we look at that as a vehicle for learning. Really, the risk is that you maybe run out of money and you have to you have to start over, you have to get a job. So I think that's an important point. All right, shifting gears, T3PM. Matt, can you maybe explain this acronym for the audience?
1: Yeah, and I affectionately call it the company's insight score, and it stands for TAM, so Total Addressable Market, basically how big the market is that you're, you're competing in. Timing, so where are you at in terms of timing? Are you too early, just right? too soon track record so how have you been doing in your plan are you growing to the revenue pace of the market or the unit share pace of the market or is there something wrong plan so do you have a plan to take advantage of of what's in front of you and then momentum so can you attract the capital and the team to actually get you to where you need to be and so you calculate it in a very easy heuristic so the first four variables you calculate one two or three higher the better add those first four variables up. So if you're perfect, you do a three plus three plus three plus three, which is 12. And then you multiply those by one, two, or three, which is your ability to get capital and team. And that's your, your score. And if it's over 20, you have a pretty darn good chance of being a market leader.
0: And of the five vectors that you use to calculate the insight score, talent has this multiplier effect. What is it about talent that makes it a multiplier effect on the rest of the score. Yeah. You know, you've heard this adage before.
1: Sounds like a made for TV movie a little bit, but it's all about people and your ability to scale through people. It's not just the amount of people, but getting the right ratio of people that could be number of developers to everybody else or number of salespeople to sales ops people. But it's also the stage in which you hire people. So people that are good at Tactical startup execution are really important early stages of a business versus later stage where you might need more general management experience. So it's really important to get, obviously, the right people in terms of IQ, grit, creativity, determination, but also get the right people for the right stage in which your business is at, which is why when I jump around to different businesses and different verticals at different stages, I typically am not always bringing the same people that helped me in my last job. So I try to assess who's right, the right time, the right stage of business.
0: Stage is incredibly important in assessing talent. And it's been, you know, as a founder, that's been one of the most challenging things to nail. Because oftentimes you can sense quality, but stage appropriateness is just another level of difficulty because someone could be great and have all of the competencies that you want in your business, but in the role and jobs to be done today, you know, those competencies and skills may not be most important, right? And so kind of planning for stage appropriateness within your talent is just so key. I've struggled with that before.
1: Yeah. And I think talent acquisition and hiring is is something that, especially for a founder or CEO, is something you have to commit dedicated time to every week. And you're playing chess, not checkers. Like You're thinking multi-quarters out, if not a year out around, okay, if X, Y, and Z happens with the plan. I hit this level of stage measured by whatever metric it is. Do I have the right person for that? Or do I know who I'd be talking to or looking to hire because the best talent takes a long time to actually land, as you know. So it's it's something that is just like you seem like somebody who's very regimented Mm -hmm. and believe in compounding of talent and compounding of learning. Talent acquisition is the same type of habit that you have to do every day.
0: It's a perfect segue to what I'd love to ask you about, which is about something that stood out to me in studying your background, reading Unlock, the exposure to legendary entrepreneurs and investors that you've had over the course of your career, right? Like Folks like Rich Barton, Mike Hilton of Concur, and even Mike Moritz of Sequoia Capital fame. And we'll return to Mike Moritz in a moment. But at a certain point, I believe you receive a call from Rich Barton to give a reference on someone and he starts recruiting you. Yes, I'm curious about that experience and what you ended up learning about talent from Rich Barton.
1: Yeah. And and Rich is, I think most people know him. He's the founder of Expedia. He spun Expedia out, uh, just a context setting. He spun Expedia outside of Microsoft, which is a pretty impressive feat in and of itself. Took the company public, ran it to a huge company. IAC, eventually Interactive Corporation, run by Barry Diller, and whose CFO at the time was Dara khazr who's now the CEO of Uber. So there's a lot of names oh, yeah. in this example. And Rich has subsequently been you know, a, a partner at Benchmark, started Zillow and is now the CEO of Zillow, came back as CEO recently, started Glassdoor that was acquired, AVO, which is a legal marketplace, a bunch of other things. So he really does have the Midas touch, but you would never know that when you meet him, because he doesn't hit you over the head with his ego. There's other components to him that I find quite special. To answer to answer your question about Rich is it was um, right after September eleventh and I was just kind of licking my wounds from laying off a lot of people at a startup that I was the president of, not the founder of, but the founding partner of called Adam Films. And it was taking a little bit of time off. And, you know, Rich called me and was was recruiting was thinking about recruiting somebody to the company and then asked what I was doing. He basically told me to get off my ass and do something. And then travel was probably the thing that I should be doing since no one's traveling. And if you don't have travel, you don't have life. So get off my ass and work for him. So yeah, Rich recruited me on that call. I met with the entire executive team at Expedia. and It was a pretty quick interview loop, pretty intense interview loop. And I knew Rich because he was on the board of this startup called Adam Films, which was a digital entertainment company. So yeah, I mean, Rich is, to kind of bleed into your next question, Rich is a phenomenal leader in that he's really good at defining BHAGs, like the Jim Collins BHAG of Big Hairy Audacious Goal, something that's very big, seems larger than what you could achieve, is very good at developing systems of meritocracy in an organization. So really the feeling that in Expedia, in the golden area of Expedia, I would say is it felt like anyone could come up with a billion dollar idea. And we hired a caliber of people that certainly came up with billion dollar ideas, but he certainly cultivated an environment where that was reinforced. And in addition to that, he's just super competitive. Like I remember we did a company outing. I don't know. It was a party. I don't know what it was, but the Seattle Mariners stadium. And there was like a home run competition. So you could try to hit a home run off a major league baseball pitcher. And he gets up, he being rich, gets up and hits a home run. Now, the background on this is, I guess he spent weeks upon weeks training oh with a major league baseball player. He had some kind of training. So um, the thing about Rich is funny. He's really competitive, but he also is good at trying to figure out the edge, the asymmetrical edge to win. and Not to cheat, but to win. And that came up a lot of times in how he operated Expedia, that he had some kind of edge that he learned some insight that he learned, something that he learned that he used to exploit. Again, not cheat, but to exploit an advantage he was really good at. So he was a pretty phenomenal person
0: to kind of grow up with in my career. Oh, absolutely. And the one of the lessons there is just always be recruiting, right? Yes, uh, always, always be recruiting. Always, always. And just like have that eye for talent acquisition because you never know when you're going to find it. And when you find it, hang on for dear life, right? And always be recruiting. Love that. God,
1: I was going to say, that was an important point that I missed since it was part of the September 11th story and how he pitched me. And he gave me a business when I was really young, both age and in my career, where you know the company trusted me with a business that became around a billion dollars in gross sales. And it wasn't just me, it was a ton of folks, you know, guys like Spencer Raskoff, who ran Zillow for a while, who's a Who's a phenomenal investor and and operator in his own right? Lloyd Frank, Barney Hartford, who's had a phenomenal career for a while, he was the CEO of Uber and he's on the board of United. I mean, I could continue. I mean, every everyone I could mention, they were all kids. I mean, some of these folks were running kind of call centers, and it was just hiring the smartest person that you could find and give them a big challenge, get out of their way. Obviously, you know, stage gate it so you're monitoring them through project reviews but inspire people to do their absolute best in an environment that cultivates that. And it was just an amazing way to keep hiring talented people all the time and setting these big goals and really enabling you to, to mess up in big ways without getting fired. And yeah, it's just, a, it just, that was my MBA. The Expedia in the early days was my MBA. And I think Rich, Rich is one of those unique
0: founders who's also a great operator so much there. Absolutely. Always be recruiting the, you know, the ability to operate and take bets on talent and hiring generalists early on as opposed to specialists again, and just like raw talent, aiming it at something at an ambitious goal and just going for it. Right. Mm -hmm. And knowing that the default state is failure. So be okay with that. It's like, as long as we learn something that we can apply moving forward, that's actually success. I think you hit on something that I, that I meant to say,
1: but I didn't is when you unpacked it, is a lot of a lot of individuals hire for knowledge, work experience, prior experience. I haven't found that to highly correlate to success. Example, and I failed at right? I had a product idea around this. It was a hiring product. So you could kind of weight attributes over time on people you hire for high velocity jobs and see like what value attributes actually correlate to successful outcomes. I was trying to like money ball talent, you know, and um, you can do that for things like salespeople Mm -hmm. or maybe developers. But one of the things that you said about knowledge that I wanted to highlight is generally curiosity trumps knowledge and generalists that are curious, obviously with some level of raw IQ and energy and grit Mm. end up doing way better. So hiring someone from the last B2B SaaS company that focused on government sales and you're A new version of that B2B SaaS government sales team, you're assuming the same level of outcomes, generally doesn't come to fruition. And so the knowledge piece, I think, is right that certainly in some cases you could hire, Amazon might steal someone from Microsoft for some bespoke thing they need. Sure, there's exceptions to all of this. But in general, I think the generalist that has raw IQ and that energy and curiosity, they tend to trump folks that have years of experience. Well said. And that's
0: talent, right? And Rich Mm -hmm. Barton being an incredible figure to learn from all of the secrets there, not just within talent, but also operating. If we go back to the first T of the Insight score, we have TAM, right? It's all about market size, TAM standing for total addressable market. And I'd love to illustrate this very important point, which is the difference between TAM and SAM, right? Sellable addressable market. And I'd love to maybe use a story of your experience working or being on the board of Empire. I believe the original product was an ERP for eBay buyers. So kind of relevant in my world a little bit. Mm-hmm. Would love to illustrate the points of an importance of Tam versus Sam through that experience, if you don't mind.
1: Yeah. And Tam and Timing are kind of like very close. They're twins. There's a the Hector and Pollux of, of business planning. So the TAM is something you just can't manufacture. It's the total addressable market. And in my mind, it should always be big. Even if you have a small business, it should always be big. If it's too small, at some level of competency, it could be acceleration of market or time, there's going to be a lot of competitors. It's going to be hard to acquire customers. So a billion dollars plus, everyone has their benchmark. I always think start with a B and figure it out from there. So the total addressable market, is the absolute total number of users that want your product or service or could consume it. The sellable addressable market is the specific cohort of people or companies that want your particular thing because it's almost impossible to have 100% market share unless you're a monopoly. But a sellable addressable market really denotes the fact that individuals and companies are different. There's different size of companies. There's different verticals within companies, different SIC codes. Consumers are different. There's rich ones, there's poor ones, there's thrifty ones, there's age splicing, there's psychographics, people who like country music versus rap. Not everyone's the same, thank God. And so the sellable addressable market is the sliver within the total addressable market that you can actually start building a wedge. You can start building very custom
0: solutions that really address those companies or consumers' needs. And I think one of the... (laughs) I guess, splashes of cold water in the face as I was reading the chapter was how founders lie to themselves.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Has that been your experience? Well,
1: yeah, they fall in love with the product versus the, the pain, the customer pain. And I am the, it's easy to see it when it's not you. And I do this all the time. Is I could give you a bunch, bunch of examples where I come in with a specific idea. I think I have some insight mm-hmm. and it's a problem that I have. And I skip all the different, you know, lean canvas frameworks or whatever framework you want to use. There's tons of them. Mm-hmm. And I go right to the solutioning and, like, okay, let's do some fake front door tests and do some sample Facebook traffic to drive to like, you know, email signups, you know, all the hacky stuff. right And you you don't pass go and you don't collect $200. You go right to product. And that's always the problem. Rarely that's the right way to go. And I have found that truly understanding even an uncomfortably small sellable addressable market, it could be a very small number Mm -hmm. of people that have this problem inevitably gets you to get an understanding of what they truly want. And some people call that product market fit. There's lots of names for it. But when you know that your reorder rate's really high, customers are helping you build the product, there's a path to making this a reasonably sized business based on what you think a reasonably sized business is. Then you're on the right track. Too many folks, including myself, I don't know if you have this problem, Mm -hmm. try to hit all the bowling pins at the back of the TAM versus (laughs) I'm going to hit the first bowling pin, which is, uncomfortable. An example is Expedia, my go to market was software companies or technology companies and manufacturing companies to sell them online corporate travel. Now that seems like the babushka of sellable addressable markets, right? So it's right, it's like, wow, it's a you know trillion dollar market plus and he's spliced all the verticals down to this one little sliver. Well why was that? Well, they were the loudest. They also had the highest margin in their overall operating businesses and I felt like those businesses were growing very quickly. And they kind of got it. They were already using technology at the time. That's stupid. To, when you listen to this you're like this guy can't be he's got to be 800 years old, but at one <laughs> point there was real travel agents in companies sitting outside the CEO's office that did travel. So, I was introducing a electronic version of that, a digital version of that so that anyone could book their travel and there was lots of cool tools around that. We automatically upgraded people's seats and wait lists. There's lots of cool stuff that we did. And the transaction fees were like really small, like $5 versus going to American Express, which was hundred dollars. So I tried to find, and I knew the market was going that way. So I tried to find the smallest group of people who understood this had the same pain and wanted my product. And then once we nailed those folks, you know, Amazon was an early customer, for instance, We expand it. And then eventually we had, you know, the companies you'd expect to see, you know, financial institutions and stuff like that. But so if you don't start out with that core understanding of the sellable addressable market and their pain, you're going to build something that usually doesn't work or needs too much capital. And then you hope it works. It's just not going to be the right thing. And Everyone tries to solve the back of the bowling pin problem.
0: I relate to the back of the bowling pin analogy. When we first started Convictional, My co founder Roger and I, you know, we'd left our jobs at Shopify. We're like, okay, we are going to basically reinvent B2B trade. And like EDI is Mm -hmm. incredibly legacy. It's hard to work with. And like that pitch, you know, it's responsible for $5 trillion worth of B2B trade. That pitch is seductive to a certain person, probably Mm -hmm. investors and so on. But like customers make no sense of that. And I think that just was. A two year yeah. lesson for us of, okay, what is our version of the first bowling pin within this much larger vision that customers can relate to? And I think that dovetails into your section on timing of the book. And this one is the most difficult. I'd love to kind of maybe just elaborate on convictional before jumping into the question. But in the book, you talk about how it's a good idea to map out technology shifts and behavior shifts and with convictional you know i don't think we could have started this company 5 to 10 years ago i think it's sort of like right now the market is happening right now because you have large retailers who want to shed excess inventory customers are buying from d2c brands that use shopify and retailers are like how do i source those products edi mm-hmm. well shopify doesn't speak the mm-hmm. language of pre internet erps right And so, Mm -hmm. you know, we came to this conclusion, what if we allowed large retailers to onboard modern brands and vendors? That single sort of one-liner resonates much more than reinvent B2B trade. (laughs) So is timing actually about serendipity, right? Or is it about preparedness and having a secret? And hopefully that, that question makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. And I hated writing this chapter because
1: it's really hard. Anyone that's, you know, it's like, how do you money ball that you're a new service or product or maybe an adjacency play on an existing thing that moves into another vertical? How do you make that successful and and do it in a way where you're not too early? Because most entrepreneurs are too early because they're really smart. I mean, most entrepreneurs that I know, doesn't sound like you're one of them, are way too early and commit way too much capital before the market's ready. Big companies usually can have the ability to sit back in the sagebrush, watch all the young lions go by, and then pounce. And they can do that relatively effectively. So you look at Apple, like Apple's not really an innovator, they're a packager, you know? They're always not the fastest and first on the spec, but they're the best at kind of packaging it within their ecosystem at a high price. And they're not trying to be a unit share leader, they're trying to be a revenue share leader. So to answer your question a long the way is, all the folks that I talked to in the book kind of lied. They always say it's serendipity and they didn't know what they were doing. But when I started really drilling into the years before they committed capital or first product, and I really kind of pushed them on what was kind of the thought process was for whatever they were doing, like a game, in the case of Rovio or Concur, which is online expense reporting in the case of of Concur and Mike Hilton, was a secret. And that secret is pretty consistent, everyone that you talk to, that you have, since there's no edge. Meaning advantage in anything technology wise because everything's an API, everything's open source. You can spin up Sprox and everywhere, databases everywhere. Everything's easy. Then you only have an edge, and information is actually super commoditized as well. I mean, Robinhood of today is you know far different than actually like manually going through and kind of finding value based companies going through manual ten Qs. You know, it's so hard back in the day. You had edge if you were patient. If you were Warren Buffett, you had edge. Now you don't have any edge. And so the people that have edge, I think, have some kind of insight. And that insight can come from many places. In the case of Robio in the book, it was these uh, game developers that built traditional games on traditional Java brew handsets that were kind of non-graphical and crappy, and they worked with Nokia. But they understood at the hardware level where things were going, and they knew that They could see the trajectory of Nokia's development, the chipsets, and they knew exactly where it was going and what consumers wanted because they watched the PC console games. And they're basically like, look, we know that this thing in your hand is going to get better. We didn't know that Apple, they didn't know that Apple was going to be as big, but they were completely on the sidelines waiting to take advantage of hardware specific things that they could build really compelling games around because they knew that generally what people wanted to play. And so... That was their insight is the device is going to be small. There's going to be device centric things like an accelerometer that are going to be fun. They didn't know what it was going to be and that consumers are going to want a very bespoke experience based around that device. It's just not there yet. And so they learned their craft by being very close to Nokia and waited it out and almost were too late for the app store rollout. They were actually a little skeptical. And then once they saw a couple of a million downloads on a game called Doodle Jump, which is one of my games back in the day. They were like, hey, this is actually kind of up our alley and went all in. So I the answer to your question long went away is I do think it's an there's certainly serendipity, but I definitely think that the the edge and the serendipity are almost the same as someone's really focused on a problem and understands an industry pain point and kind of gets a sense of technology or workflow changes generally has that edge. And there are ways to find the edge. And one way to find the edge is if you're a consumer business is you can do really easy testing. And I highlight a gentleman who was part of Pioneer Square Labs and they're in the business. They're a startup studio accelerator that tests hundreds of ideas and kill most of them. And they have it down in terms of figuring out if they're going to go to a market based on customer acquisition costs. You can get data breadcrumbs really quickly if you look at intent being high and and CAC being high. It's generally something you don't want to be involved in if you're early stage. And there's some things you can do in B2B as well. But a long-winded way is I do think it's an edge around a secret. And I think the best entrepreneurs that I know have some kind of fundamental knowledge because they spent time in this. Maybe it's their own problem. And they understand kind of the underlying rationale why this is going to change. And it's articulated frequently as serendipity. But when you dig into it, it's not. I mean, Barry Dealer, a guy I worked with for years at IAC, media mogul, brilliant guy, would always say, I don't know how things work, it's serendipity. Yeah, serendipity, he's working 90 hours a week. He studied home shopping network. He saw the internet. I mean, he had his own edge. He had his own insight. He's like, I'm going to buy all these e-commerce businesses like LendingTree and Match.com and Expedia and Hotels.com because all these things are going to be important i'm going to buy a lot of them because eventually google is going to compete with me so i need to control demand and then we need to have control over supply so he he not only had a thesis on the internet being big on e-commerce he had a thesis around how to stave off competition on the demand and the supply side so all these people that talk about edge or serendipity yeah you know it's the edison like the famous quote about how many hours you work that's cre- that's how much you create in terms of luck is I think it's the edge because you have that
0: insight. Mm. Our listener is hopefully you know, keeping track of, or maybe struggling to keep track of, the number of industries and verticals you've led companies in turnaround situations in everything from language learning, gaming, SaaS, startups, retail, and more. And one question that comes to mind across the companies that you're often parachuted into is how, you know, it's an existing team in an existing culture. When you enter these businesses, right, to set a new strategy and direction, they are effectively taking a leap on you, right? You, Matt, as their new dear leader. How do you earn their trust to execute towards, a, you know, the new vision, your vision quickly? It's easy to see how you would face resistance perhaps early on.
1: Yeah, and I always use this term heart and math what does that mean? Hardened math is inevitably before I accept a position and, you know, just to be blunt, like people look at my career and they go, you're like the king of weird shit, you know, cause I've <laughs> jumped around to one of my investors said, he's a microcap <laughs> investor. He said, everyone looks at me and says, I invest in weird shit. I'm like, well, that's funny because I operate weird shit. And he's like, that's why we're a good match. But I opt into what I take on. It's not like I'm a PE and I'm given an assignment Uh, and a briefcase and a silencer rifle and go in opting into it. And so the heart of it is I have to find a purpose for that business that's bigger than itself. Maybe a purpose that they don't even know that exists yet, but I have to have some empathy before I go in on the people, the mission, the culture, even if the culture is screwed up, but there's good people, I have to have some empathy for it. And so the heart component, people feel when you're there. Everyone talks about authentic, you know, being authentic and empathetic and transparent and collaborative. Yeah, if you walk in kind of selling a bill of goods, people will smell it really quickly. So I walk in generally being selfless, very clear about what I wanna do, very clear that people in the team may not like what I'm gonna be doing. Some people don't make it. So I have to get rid of some people, I have to hire net new people, I have to adjust people's pay. But I'm super clear after about 90 days why I'm doing it. And that's usually a cultural reset or enhancement refinement of the vision and mission, simplifying the operating model, getting new capital strategy. I get all that stuff fixed or at least set on a template pretty quickly doing it's hard. And then the math piece is, you know, being data driven and everything you do, even if you don't think you're data driven, like the thing that drives me nuts is if you talk to someone and this, it's okay if they need to like take a two hour, you know, Udemy class in Excel is if you got to have a null hypothesis in life and you got to come to me with a recommendation and i don't care who you are even if you're like null hypothesis i look it up i mean you can learn pivot tables very quickly in fact it does it for you now i always use the traditional view but like it's super easy now <laughs> <laughs> i still like to drag the rows and columns versus like excel's like we think you yep. want this and it's like so the math of it is is setting up an environment where the kpis are simple that anyone can remember the most important one but you've architected the entire environment of your business to track to a plan and the heart and math component makes people actually feel better it makes people feel like my mission in life is surpassing what i thought it was i i'm doing something greater than myself i'm either opting in or opting out of it but the folks that are opting in should feel good about it and secondarily there's a math model there's some person behind the curtain who's tracking all of this stuff with a proverbial metaphysical green visor that says, yeah, LTV to CAC is this, or it's my revenue numbers that. And people can track it. It's like a big thermometer that goes up or down. And the heart math piece reinforces that what you're doing is working, or if not, what we're going to do about it. And it's a style in which most operators don't like most operators like to be day one, the CEO and founder and they're the product manager day one and everything's perfect. And the cultural values have been laid out like, you know, in an offsite and Whistler and everyone's drinking beers. I mean, that's awesome by the way. I don't have the luxury of doing that. I have the luxury of going in and there's pre-existing stuff. So the only way you can do it is I think heart and math, the math reinforces the plan. The heart gets you through the tough times and reinforces something that can be you know, a moat, it could be a cultural moat, it could be a brand that has a moat and a promise around it. And so that's how I think about it.
0: Heart and math, especially relevant in bad times. And if we look at the current macroeconomic conditions, we kind of see some patterns of what happened in, you know, after the great financial crisis in 2008. And just a backdrop here, Uh, Sequoia Capital recently published a memo, fantastic read, called Adapting to Endure, which basically advises operators on how to make sense of and survive the current macroeconomic conditions. And in 2008, Mike Moritz, someone I believe you've had the opportunity to learn from, of Sequoia Capital, Mm -hmm. famously showed portfolio company CEOs a tombstone (laughs) that read, RIP good times. Mm -hmm. How are you? Thinking about this in the context of running and operating pet meds, would love to dive into that.
1: Yeah. And I, in context, I mean, Mike is arguably, I'm sure like I'm going to be somewhat right, somewhat wrong, but one of the most successful investors of all time. And he's certainly the most interesting. He was a journalist by trade and a very counterintuitive thinker in his investments. In fact, he invested in a company that I was a founding partner of called Adam Films, as part of a combination, we were a a startup based in Seattle that was basically had a thesis around entertainment is going to be short form. It's going to be on your phone. It's going to be on your screen. And everyone's laughing like, dude, that's YouTube. I mean, we were funded before YouTube. In fact, Mike Moritz later went on to fund YouTube after us. Brilliant. And it was a little bit better of a, an IRR than, than us. And eventually our company did get sold, but you know, it wasn't like a huge return. It, it would have been done better, you know, maybe with S&P 500, but it was a some return. Uh, Viacom bought it. But the point of it is, I was just coming out of this high-flying company we talked about earlier, Progressive Networks, where I had a product that was being downloaded 300 times a day. And then when I left, it was being downloaded 300,000 times a day, back when we used to download software versus within a, a web experience. And so I thought everything always would go up and I didn't have to manage a PNL. Fast forward, there was no business models. Companies were not as healthy as they are now. The class of companies that have been funded now actually have good businesses for, by and large, they do. And if they're not, they've been laying off pretty aggressively. So I think the business class of this generation is much stronger and smarter, and there's more playbooks because we have more history. We have more historians now, and older folks with gray, like myself, who can go, okay, I remember what that was like, or you better get your unity economics down. So Mike was a board member on this company called Adam Shockwave and virtually overnight everything busted. There was no advertisers on the internet which is a big part of our revenue and we had a lot of fixed costs and not a lot of runway. And I think we closed the last substantial round in Silicon Valley, Bay Area. Yeah, I was like uh, early 2000 for like 23 million dollars or something. And I remember driving, I had a, this is kind of funny, but I was like, I had corporate housing in Marin in the Bay Area and it was, you know, a beautiful drive, go across the Golden Cape Bridge, but it'd take you like an hour plus. And as soon as the bubble popped, like the next day, meaning people are getting laid off, businesses are dying. Right. It took me like 15 minutes to get into work and it was like a ghost town. I was like, what the hell? Wow. And Mike had this perspective that, you know, you need to have a set of operating practices to survive. And in essence, that started my career off on being kind of a turnaround guy because I never really had to lay anyone off until then. And that was my fault. And I took it very personally. I got really depressed. You know, hundreds of people Mm -hmm. going out the door and, you know, me having them to sign your releases and stuff and mass doesn't make you feel good. And if it makes you feel good, then you're a psychotic person. Mm -hmm. And Mike was really good, and I think all the subsequent Sequoia capital memos are basically derivatives of that memo with ideas around preserving cash, getting your unit economics down, not being so burdensome on CAC. And hopefully you have a good mix of CAC. Understanding the specific product strategy you're going after versus multiple. There's a lot of things you get into trouble with when the funds are flowing and the VCs are saying, grow, 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 grow at all costs because you know the step-up valuation is great for their assets under management mm-hmm. and their management fees. So that gets me off a, a little derivative there. So step back, you asked me a question about pet med. So in general, I think of businesses as discrete things versus macro things. And so everyone comes to me and says, oh my God, you know, I'm running out of money in 30 days. I'm like, well, you should have called me like six months ago. <laughs> so in general, right. it's like, it is good practice to have at least two years of cash. Like your fixed costs times 24, that should be the amount of money mm-hmm. in your bank. Do most startups have that? No. Should minimum be a year. Mm -hmm. In general, like you should understand when to hire somebody. Like you should understand what the metric is. I don't know what the metric is for each business. For like revenue, for instance, how many salespeople do you need to hire based on the pipeline that you see? And things like for SaaS, are 80% of my reps hitting plan or not? And if not, then I probably wouldn't be hiring more people. So simple ways to know when to, in a KPI-driven way, control your costs. Sometimes the smart thing to do is stop everything and no backfill. Like if you feel like you're spinning out of control, you go into triage mode, you don't do backfills. Some people are doing layoffs, but you can, with proper planning, be really smart about it so that you can come out of a recession or a downturn much, much stronger. And so cash preservation is one thing. The flip side to that is some verticals, and I'm answering not around pet meds for a reason, Mm Um, some verticals you actually can accelerate share during recessions. So you know if you're in the business of consumer, I love consumer businesses. B two B is easier. Everyone's going to debate me on this. I, <laughs> I just think consumer is so much more fun. Right. But so you know you can actually find areas of of white space to expand. Uh, lower CAC is typically a determinant of a, a turn down. Public companies have to show remediation very very quickly. They pull out of variable marketing to hit their earnings targets. And, you know, things like top of the funnel advertising become really inexpensive. It it was like that with the pandemic. In fact, I'm still kicking myself that I pulled a very large TV buy during the pandemic and one of my competitors, Babble, accelerated because TV rates were dropping. And so for the mindful operator that understands their unit economics, understands how to control their fixed costs and be mindful of when to hire the next new person, it could actually be the best time to be growing your business. And so for pet meds, you know we're in a vertical where pets are your family members. We're in the consumable side of the vertical. It's a $100 billion vertical. We're in a $10 billion SAM. That vertical is pretty recessionary resilient. It remains to be seen with this kind of inflation, how resilient it is. And so what I always like to do is look at lots of TTM, lots of historical data. It's a 26-year-old business, so I can look at and plot how things look over time. And then I ask customers like, hey, why did you not refill a prescription, for instance? And so any operator can be actively talking to customers in a non-scalable way. Like you can actually call them, which is super fun, or you can actually (laughs) survey them. Or there's lots of ways to do it, but you'll get a sense, you know, in the B2B business, if you're selling to procurement, you know, that's an easy call. If you're selling to the IT, head IT, and you get like five to 10 data points, you generally get a sense when budgets start drying up. So with pets, our business has been so unoptimized for so many years. We've been losing share. I've been the CEO for less than a year Mm that we have a lot of things to do to get to competency and those things are going to show us growing. And so because I take on assets and companies that are a little bit screwed up, my playbook's different than if I was in a startup. A startup, I think, the playbooks are, look, you're a Y Combinator background, you, you know, you have resources to the world's best playbooks. They'll tell you exactly what to do. With a vertical like pets, it's pretty recessionary proof, a knock on wood.
0: And that's a fantastic position to be in. You had a note, the trick is not to get into the ring. And I love that. A large part of our audience would be retail executives. And I think what's so interesting about the principles of thriving in a downturn apply regardless of whether you're consumer or B2B or retail versus SaaS or pick your your vertical or product. Cash is king, right? Cash is Runway king. Runway is the, and unit economics are critical in all times, but now more than ever. Mm-hmm. So relevant across verticals. Just had a couple of other quick questions and then we can wrap up. Uh, pet meds, it's this brand customers have trusted for decades, right? As a pet health brand. Are you thinking about assortment expansion as a growth lever, and how are you approaching that?
1: Yeah, most definitely. And you have some choices to make in retail businesses because you know it's the two by two of Michael Porter, which is on my right bicep. It's a joke, uh, not not uh, no one laughed. Really, um, yeah. I, I I had myself on <laughs> mute there, but I like almost and because I was
0: taking a sip of water and I was like almost gonna spit it out on my microphone because you know on really? the far the far right you have the vertical focus on the
1: left you have the horizontal focus. Right, And then you have low cost on the left and premium on the right. And so inevitably in retail, because the answer is always, what about Amazon, right? And Mm -hmm. in my world, it's Amazon and Chewy and others. And I'm not going to be able to to be the everything store for pets. I'm way too late if I ever wanted to do that. And that doesn't make any sense. So for any retailer that's trying to compete against the macro low cost, large skew, large assortment, value discount kind of player, those are very difficult places to play in. And there's tons of places where you can play on the vertical side. And so um, in a long winded way is, yeah, I mean, right now, majority of our business is prescription uh, products because there's friction there. The consumer has to actually contact us. And then on behalf of the customer, we get the prescription authorized by the vet. And that has a lot of friction. A lot of companies don't like the fact that you can't just put like, you know, use a headless e-commerce solution, hit buy and it ships right away. There's, there's some logistics in the background. right? Like the contact lenses space or like the other in- analogies. So, you know, our milk of the back of the store is the script, is the prescription. And so what I see us as is more of the CVS up to the Walmart and it could be the Chewy is the equivalent of the Walmart. Yep. And so, yeah, we need to actually fill in a bunch of SKUs and assortment on, on food and more consumables, and we don't have those. And there's a variety of reasons why the company didn't do that over the years. But in an environment where it's recessionary, customers do flock online. They like the convenience of it. People don't want to drive because of gas prices. They want more solutions from one vendor, and so it makes more sense for us to be offering more products. Not probably as much as the other folks, but the ones where they, they, through their prism of us, would
0: want to buy. And so absolutely, yes. You'll have to get the BCG matrix tattooed on your uh, <laughs> your thigh or something next time you're... <laughs> yeah, that'd be weird. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm sure. And it sounds like from at least an assortment perspective, PetMeds thinks about it in a more curated way. Most of our customers would be similar in the sense that they want to be fresh and different, not an Amazon clone. Yes. I think that's critical to um, the success of retailers long-term. How do we be fresh and different with our assortment and be first to market with new products that we know our customers want, and then cycle out SKUs that don't make sense, right? If a SKU isn't productive, get rid of it and cycle on a new SKU that we think has promise and test and learn.
1: Yeah, I agree. I, you know, I'm, I would not call myself a traditional retail executive, you know, I'm, although I run a retail business and an e-commerce business. And because of that, I always find it's interesting how, gosh, are they still around? Remember Channel Advisor?
0: Oh yeah. They're still around. Yeah. Still kicking.
1: Okay. <laughs> but there's all these companies that had feeds and they thought about feeds as skews and the taxonomy of a SKU. And yep. you, you know what I'm talking about because you're in this business. Mm-hmm. So I'm always like, and I just like looking at data and I was like, what is all this stuff? And eBay was like the mosh pit of taxonomies because it made no sense. <laughs> and, um, because it's, it's consumer entered obviously. So, right. you know, you could misspell something and find something, I guess that's your form of edge. Long story longer is The smart assortment, the smart merchandise, I'm reflecting on what you're saying, building some intelligence so that the operators and the retailers offer differentiation and they can put services and brand around it is where it should be going. And I'm surprised entering this company. I've talked to people who are Petco and PetSmart, and it just feels like everyone's schlock and skews and i'm like god you know this is so weird mm-hmm. like it's kind of like social shopping i do i buy a lot of stuff on instagram mm-hmm. i mean like, my feed is like hats and shoes and sure. the targeting's relatively good but the experience is still pretty shitty and i think to myself like man when are we going to start getting like really good next level kind of you know feed management and i know that's in your i'm giving you an advertisement but <laughs> it's still i'm shocked coming into the industry again And looking at feeds, because I've worked with eBay and Amazon at a very detailed level, at an API level, it kind of feels like there's been no innovation there. And so I'll triple down on what you said that inevitably, you know, if you're trying to compete on selection, you're trying to compete on shipping, that's kind of been done. What is your thing? And so if you're trying to be like a tastemaker yourself and you're not data driven as a tastemaker, good luck. You have to be either really, really bespoke. And so my wife, for instance, has her own line of non-alcoholic wine alternatives.
0: Rock Grace. Yes, out Rock Grace. Rock Grace, yeah. my wife.
1: And, but like the types of brands that she's into are like Tata Harper, mm-hmm. Goop. And I was mm-hmm. like, what is this? And it's like women that wear Lululemon pants and drive Range Rovers. They buy these products and right. it's clean beauty. And, and like, I'm like, I don't know what this is, but it's like really expensive for a small bottle. But like they have limited uh, skew assortment and high on brand and high on individual ingredients or assortment. Even some of the high-end retailers in the skin and beauty space do a really good job around providing an experience around the skew assortment. So yes, in a long-winded way, I'm saying, yeah, I'm surprised that there hasn't been more innovation there. I know this is kind of a, an advertisement for what you do, but I am surprised. Inevitably, I'm not going to win by trying to match the next biggest retailer in pets with 60,000 to 100,000 SKUs. However, if I can find things that nobody has, maybe I'll do private label, maybe I'll do exclusive. Target did a really good job of turning around their business many years ago, doing Ice McRose, Mizrahi brands mm-hmm. and, and differentiated brands you can only find on their site. You know, my whole edge will be the more expert stuff I can do around that skew experience. And so I'm not going to rely so much on right exclusive. So it's, you know, for me it's the vet, you know, telemedicine in your hand. So that's a long winded way of saying, yes, I'm going to expand, but that I can't win skew for skew versus the biggest person out there.
0: And it makes sense. I think marketplace is, it's been done in many verticals mm-hmm. and it's winner take all. And so mm-hmm. if you're going to compete again, you have to be fresh and different, which is the framing of, that you laid out as it pertains to pet. I think that also, you know, sort of this mosh pit of skew taxonomy that, you know, you experienced with eBay back in the empire days, certainly what we see when we're working with, you know, vendors, right? Third party vendors who use just a hodgepodge of different systems. And we go in there and we have to clean it up so that we can surface it to the retailer and make meaning of it. And that's just an incredibly hard problem, you know, regardless of how many SKUs you want to take on.
1: I think the thing I like about your business is it's the uh, most unsexy business you can find. <laughs> love it. No, I mean, I'm not. It's a yeah. compliment. It's like, you know, it's right. like sh- like shipo. I love shipo, yep. And like, it is like, that is the gnarliest business. <laughs> and I love talking about the people. But like these gnarly businesses that like it's just an API call and you're like, God, I'm glad that like, you know, Chris and his team are dealing with this because I don't have to deal with it. Those are great businesses, (laughs) like really good management teams on really kind of like logistically horrible, kind of mentally tiring problems. I love those businesses.
0: (laughs) Well, the more esoteric, but bigger the market, right, or bigger the, the, the TAM or SAM. The more, not only the more value you can extract from it. I guess that's maybe an oversimplistic way to frame. It's like the fewer, the fewer competitors you're going to have. Yes, at any given point in time, because the amount of, you know, the barrier to entry is awareness that this freaking problem exists. And by the way, you know, it's like a chief digital officer or CEO of a large retailer who's like, "I have this problem," and it Mm -hmm. turns out it's like. It's part of the boardroom conversation. That's how difficult it is. So, yeah, we lived it at Shopify, and then parlayed, you know, our experiences there in Synthesis into Convictional. And actually, my co-founder Roger implemented SPS Commerce, which is an EDI platform for GNC back in the day. Mm. So, kind of, you know, instead of going to university, that was his MBA, and then, you know, full circle. Here we are with with Convictional. Anyways, this interview, Matt, has been incredible, and I really appreciate you taking the time. I know we've gone over. I'd love to just quickly go into four uh, rapid-fire round questions, if you don't mind. Let's do it. All right. Most exciting opportunity in B2B post-COVID? I like this company out of Seattle called Flex.
1: F-L-E-X-E. They're like warehouse in a cloud. Just raised a, another round of money. CEO's really smart. The head of marketing is somebody I've worked with in the past. I think it's it's an awesome opportunity and they're going to be in the right place at the right time. This is like the next, where, you know, headless e-commerce is kind of, Mm -hmm. this is not really lightning round, I guess, but headless e-commerce was hot for a while, still is, but like, this is going to be a hot, hot company. Awesome.
0: I'll definitely have to check it out. A brand you love and why?
1: Yeah, I would try not to say Apple, but there's two. Athletic Brewing, which is a non-alcoholic beer. Mm -hmm. And I like it. I'm big on like, really curated brands that are consistent from the mission all the way down to the delivery. So they have a great brand. They give a large percentage of their, of their companies profits to organizations that support a variety of different causes. They support athletes in particular and non-alcoholic beer just sucks. And it's actually the only one that I like. And the, the packaging is beautiful and their service is exemplary. So it's kind of like the Patagonia of beers. You know, it's non-alcoholic and they nice. just love their ethos.
0: Well, Athletic Brewing has non-alcoholic beers and uh, Rock Race has non-alcoholic champagne and and cocktails, right? Yeah, you got it. There you go. Most important lesson in fatherhood? Unconditional love and listen more than preach. Love that. And we will wrap up with this final rapid fire question, which is the kindest thing someone has done for you. It has to be my mom. And
1: there's so many instances where my mom has helped me. I mean, she's famous. I used to open speeches up by saying with an attention getter, fuck you. I hope you fail. just something <laughs> she actually told me when I was being an asshole, when I was a senior <laughs> in high school. But she's a, re- I mean, she is a hardcore, like devout mom. I remember like I have this image of her staying up all night doing my campaign posters for my ASB president campaign. And, and I went to sleep and she did work on these things all night. I actually won. I was ASB mm-hmm. president of my school. But I just have this image of her kind of crunched over, sign after sign after sign, staying up all night just for me. I think maybe that exemplifies the devotion and and the kindness that she showed to me.
0: That is a perfect place to wrap. Matt, thank you so much for spending time with me today to cover your eclectic career, your story, your incredible book, Unlock. And for folks who are interested, Unlock, I would highly recommend it especially in these tough times. The audio book was recently released. You can find that on Audible. Matt will grace you with his voice, and I highly recommend the the audio version. Matt, anything else you want to touch on before we wrap up?
1: No, I just want to congratulate you on being a lifetime learner. I listened to one of the first episodes with you talking to your co-founder and his interesting experience being homeschooled. And I just find that your curiosity and your, your mission and your business is super, super interesting and compelling. So hats off to you for doing a podcast like this.
0: Thank you. I really appreciate it. And hey, we're, we're trying to make it happen, yeah. right? So, all right. Well, that's a perfect place to wrap. And thanks again, Matt. Really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thanks again to Matt for coming on the show and just delivering the goods. And thank you, listener, for listening. We have an exciting roster of C-suite executives in retail and e-commerce lined up for you in season two. So if you don't want to miss a single episode, please subscribe to the show on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also stay updated by following Convictional on LinkedIn and on Twitter. Finally, if you want to share some feedback on the show, DM me on Twitter. I'm at Chris Grushy, Or you can email me at chris at convictional.com. Thanks again for listening.